This morning, I want to begin with a question or a series of questions with you and for you. Beginning like this, have you ever felt small and insignificant? Like who you are and what you're doing doesn't really matter? Like no one really sees or cares? Have you ever been in that situation? Probably all of us have been at one point or another. This feeling could appear even in your own home. Maybe a spouse that doesn't feel appreciated or a child that gets overlooked in a large family. Or maybe in your workplace where you faithfully labored for over a decade or more. And it just seems to go unnoticed. You're just another cog in the wheel. Or maybe even here at church, you've been serving in church faithfully as a member for many years. Maybe you've changed diapers in the nursery. You've taught children's classes. You've made meals and you've visited the sick and the elderly. You've gone to hospitals. You've wept with those who have significant loss. You've uh, given financially to support the needs of others. You've set up for events and all the fellowships and you've given financially to special needs. You've pulled weeds. You've mowed the grass. You've made coffee. You've greeted guests. You've played an instrument. You've washed windows, you've attended prayer meeting, you've reached out to your neighbors, you've invited them to church, you've tried to build relationships with unbelievers in order to share the gospel, you've invited others into your home, you've done all these things, you've come to pray weekly for many of our members or for all of our members and for the pastors of this church, you've, you've faithfully attended each week, you've come to the Lord's Supper, you've been baptized, you even write notes of encouragement to people. Maybe you've done all these things. And yet you're still left with a question, does it matter? Is anybody noticing? Is it making a difference? Or should I just stop? I think we've all faced questions like this at one time or another. You've done or you're doing many of these good works. You're doing these good works of obedience for Christ to serve his church, and we're left with this sense, does it really matter? I mean, I'm small, I'm insignificant, even as Steve said a few weeks ago, you know, none of our sermons have ever gone viral. You know, not many people know about our little church right here, and they, let alone, don't know about me or you, so does it matter? We have this sense. We're not big enough to make a difference in this community, let alone in this world, so why even try? You know, we're not like that church on those hills or that church on those hills. We're just not a hilly church. We have highlands in our name, but shouldn't we be in Denver somewhere? Because where's the highlands, right? Sometimes I wonder if we're even left with the question, does God even notice and care about us? Sometimes we fall into that trap, don't we? Or even as a small church or a smaller church, we think, man, we're insignificant. Does God even know? Does what we're doing here this morning, does this even matter? What we've prayed and what we've sung, does God see? Does God care? Does it matter how we worship? Does it matter what we believe? Does God care and notice? Does it matter to him? Does the content of, about, of what I'm going to say this morning, does, it, does he care? Does the content of what our children are being taught this morning in their children's church and Sunday school, does it matter? Does it matter who leads worship? Does it matter who teaches in our church? Does it matter who's elected to our office of deacon and pastors? Does he really care? And should we? I think these are some of the questions that this small and young church at Thyatira was asking as well. Maybe not these exact ones, but ones that are similar. 
I wonder if these types of questions they wrestled with. We know very little about this church. We know a few things about the city. We know it's a, at the time of John's writing, it's a, it was a military town. It was a military outpost that was developing in commerce for the Roman government. The church, though, seems to be the smallest and the most insignificant of churches that is written to you in John's letter to them. However, one commentator has made this observation, and I think it's important. At first, we don't realize this, but this longest of the seven letters is written to the church in the smallest and least important town. Did you notice this? This is the longest letter of God through Jesus to his churches. It's the longest and it's written to the smallest and seemingly most insignificant church. And here lies the point. The values of God are not the values of men. Though small in a city and in a church aspect, the church at Thyatira and the city were poised for advancement in the Roman government as well as in the advance of the gospel in Asia. And this church, this church of Thyatira, is poised to have great impact on its city. But there's a threat. There's a threat to its effectiveness. The threat simply stated is this. There's a threat to compromise truth and to compromise holiness so that these people might fit in and be accepted with the surrounding culture and community. Another commentator makes this observation, and he, he does it succinctly and helpfully to help us understand the situation. Significant for understanding this present letter is the fact that this city had many trades, and with these trades had guilds. And these guilds were close-knit clubs, a kind of local union, that served as the primary social structure for the artisans and their families. We could say it this way, this was their community. This is their tight-knit community. And to be a, a member of one of these guilds, to be a member of one of these trades, was to be connected to those people who were in that guild with you, who practiced that trade with you. That was your family. Your livelihood, your social status, your income, your uh, acceptance amongst the people in that little city depended upon your participation and acceptance into these guilds. Each of these guilds, though, had their own patron deities. And the primary social events among these guilds were festive meals where food was served in the context where it had been sacrificed to this patron deity. So these were meals of religious intent, but social intent as well. Very often, these meals became an occasion, though, for sexual immorality to flourish, where possibly girls were made available at these male-only meals. And the debauchery and the idolatry went hand in hand in this city. But here's the connecting point for us, just like it was in Thyatira. We are tempted to compromise truth and holiness in order to conform to the cultural norms around us and to be accepted. In order to maintain respect, in order to maintain relationships, in order to maintain even our income, sometimes we are challenged to compromise truth and holiness to stay connected. But where's the grace of this passage? The grace of this passage starts right in the very beginning of verse 18. 
And then it finishes at the end and in the last few verses, verse 24 to 29, as we see a vision of Jesus. And this is the vision that, that God gives to his people. And look at the description, the words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. How does that communicate grace to us? Well, here's the grace that Jesus is the true son of God who sees with his flaming eyes and, and he judges swiftly with his pure feet of judgment and he will protect and he will purify his church as they obey him. So the call to us and the exhortation to us this morning as it was to Thyatira is to persevere in truth and holiness. Why? Because Jesus, the one who sees and knows all things, will intervene for his people. Don't compromise. Don't cave in. Don't conform to the social structures and social norms that are pressed upon us just to fit in. When Christ calls us to truth and holiness. So look with me, if you will, as the beginning of the commendation. And as we've seen the pattern, Jesus commends his people. Then Jesus condemns his people for things that are false and at lack. And these two things go together in most of these letters And then finally, in this letter, there's a final exhortation and encouragement to the church family. But look again at the description of Jesus, verse 18. He's called the Son of God. First of all, the Son of God. Now, why is this important? Why is this important? Well, one of the patron deities, one of the most prominent gods in the city, was the worship of Zeus and his son, Apollo. In essence... Jesus is addressing the church in Thyatira and saying, listen, church, the one who's speaking to you is the true son of God. This Apollo figure is nothing. Jesus immediately begins to confront the culture as well as the idolatry of that culture. Jesus is presented with flaming eyes. This goes back to chapter 1 and the description in chapter 1. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze that are refined in a furnace. What's the intent? He sees with these flaming eyes. They, they penetrate. And as we heard read already, he sees into hearts and minds. He discerns and he judges. His purified bronze feet displays him as pure and holy, even as a warrior who will not allow for sin and error He will not allow false teaching to remain in his body, in the church. He will address it. He will address it. And then look at verse 19. Here's the commendation to the church family. And this is significant. Significant. Jesus says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. These are framed together, the love and faith and the service and perseverance. It seems like they're parallel together. They're growing in their love. For who? Their love for God and their love for one another. They're growing in their faith, their, their perseverance, their understanding that, that they must endure. So they're serving one another as expression of faith and love. And they're growing in that and they're persevering in their faith. They're holding fast against some of the religious oppression that is present. And then there's the most amazing statement at the end, you're doing more than you did at first. And this stands in direct contrast to another church, right? Do you remember? The church at Ephesus, 
where God calls them back through Jesus, says, go back to the first works, do the first works again, return to your first love. It's almost as if at this point we have a comparison being made to a degree. And, it, and maybe the letter written to Thyatira will help the church at Ephesus. And maybe the letter written to Ephesus will help the church at Thyatira understand how they are supposed to live and serve their God. But it's an amazing thing. This church is growing in some ways. It's thriving in some ways. In fact, if, if Jesus were to come here and speak these words to our church, I could, I could imagine him saying things like this to us. It's very clear that you guys are growing in your love for one another, even this past week. You volunteered your time and energy. You made food. You came and you served the church family. Even as we had a memorial service for one of our members who died, it was very clear, it was very evident that the love of Christ is overflowing in your hearts. And this is awesome. Keep up the good work. In fact, the works are growing and your faith is becoming clear. And it's like you're becoming more and more rooted in truth and grounded. Keep it up. Don't quit. And then verse 20. Here's the condemnation that Jesus gives to the church. Because in the midst of this growth, in the midst of this gospel Christian works, as a result of the work of grace in them, Jesus has this against you, he says. Verse 20. I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. The main condemnation here is this word, tolerate. This is a bit of a buzzword in our culture today, is it not? In fact, tolerate, toleration, this is not a vice for our culture. This is the virtue of supreme preeminence. And Jesus says, this is what I have against you. You are tolerating a self styled prophetess, a false teacher who's come into your church and is deceiving my people. Through her teaching, she's pulling away some of Jesus' servants from the truth. Through her teaching, she is causing them to live unholy and impure lives. She's causing them to engage in sexual immorality and spiritual adultery, idolatry. Here's how the problem could be summarized. The church is allowing a false teacher to remain among them. Some of your number are therefore believing her teaching and they're compromising their lives in order to accommodate the surrounding culture. Somehow, she's deceiving them into into believing that accommodation and compromise with these guilds and with these society structures is acceptable. How is she doing this? Well, she's probably taking truth that argues along these lines. It's okay for you to go to these celebrations. It's okay for you to go to these meals and to engage in these parties and, and even sort of be present when this temple worship is going on. Because that's just normal part of life here in Thyatira. It's, it's okay. And in fact, when you eat this food, I mean, all you're doing is really simply merely eating something. You're not actually worshiping the idol, are you? This kind of logic sounds very good. In fact, it sounds very similar to Paul's argument in the letters to Corinth and other places where he talks about how food, all food, can be clean and can be eaten. 
And Jesus is teaching that even if you eat certain kinds of food, that food that you take in won't defile you. It's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. Sounds very good. In fact, she's saying that there is only one God, just as Paul says, and there are really no other gods and food is unable to defile you. See, she's taking this truth, though. She's taking this logic and she's twisting it. She's actually causing people to abandon the truth and to engage in things that are culturally compromising of their holiness. So here's the dilemma, though. Here's the dilemma that we face. As we read this letter, I think we begin to identify with the church at Thyatira, right? Because are we not called to live in the world and not be of the world? Doesn't Jesus even say that to us? Doesn't Jesus say that we're commanded to be a light in the dark world so that others will see our good deeds and glorify our Father who's in heaven? Aren't we sent into the world to engage the world? This implies that we must be close to those whom we are going to engage. We cannot remain separate from them. We must be in close proximity both in work and in relationships. So how can we obey the command of Jesus, engage the world while at the same time remaining holy? So here's the practical question. And one, one pastor said it this way, how do we walk the razor's edge? How do we avoid both cultural gluttony and cultural anorexia? How do we engage the world meaningfully without compromising the integrity of our Christianity? And here in Thyatira, this false prophetess, uh, symbolically named Jezebel, is deceiving the people. And how they can do this. She's telling them, essentially, you can follow Christ and not change. You can, you can follow Christ and not have to give up your desires. You can follow Christ and still participate in everything that the world has to offer. And it's a lie. This small letter of Thyatira, to Thyatira doesn't give us a full explanation of how we walk this razor's edge of, of walking in holiness and still engaging our culture, but it gives us some guidelines. Here's the reality. We cannot truly be missional and engage the world without holding proper truth, proper theology. That will require us as a church to draw very clear lines theologically. There, there are just certain things that we will not believe and teach, and there's things that we will not do. Secondly, we cannot be properly theological, holding on to this truth without actually being missional and engaging the world. In fact, if we say we're theological, but we're not engaging the world with truth, then we're not truly theological, because we're disobeying what God has called us to do. So this will require us as a church and as individuals to think intentionally and carefully about how we are actively walking in the world and, and how we're engaging those around us in the world with the gospel. There's some implications for this. But before we jump in, let me just ask this. How did this threat emerge in the church? Do you think that could ever happen here at Islands? Do you really think that only one person could emerge in a church and carry such influence? Is that possible? The other question I ask is, well, where were the pastors? Where were the leaders of this church at Thyatira? How did they respond to this? How did it get to this point? Did they shirk their responsibility? Or were these men also tempted to compromise? 
And then finally, the congregation. If this were to happen in our church, if there was a false teacher, a prophetess like this, who would rise up and start teaching things that don't accord with sound doctrine and true holiness, how should you as a congregation respond? Especially if the leaders aren't responding properly. Your responsibility would be to call it out. Hold the pastors, hold the elders accountable to dealing with it, to rooting it out, to cutting it out, to dealing with it so decisively and clearly as Jesus is here. Here are some implications, though, of these truths. We must have a reshaped view of holiness. We must have an understanding that to be holy is not simply to be morally, morally clean on the outside. Being holy is not simply about keeping a list of do's and don'ts and what we wear, what we don't wear. True holiness is about a total transformation of life from the inside out. We as a church... As we have a reshaped view of holiness, we cannot tolerate theological compromise. We cannot lose our otherness as a church family. Here are two ways that this is a temptation for us and our culture. First of all, there there are things that seem culturally and socially acceptable to those around us. And more and more, there are things that become socially and culturally acceptable even within those who call themselves Christians and the church. I'm just going to give you two of these examples. There are two things that we the church must be careful of. Because it seems like churches left and right are dropping like flies in these areas. First of all, where the scriptures affirm all humanity and the roles of men and women equally, the Bible and Scripture speaks very clearly about not exalting women to position of leadership as pastors in the church. But all around us we see churches who are disobeying the clear commands of God. That's one of the unbalanced truths that our society and culture does not like to hear. That God has ordained specific roles in his creation and how things ought to work. Now we as a church thoroughly love and exalt the women in our church. We want you to serve effectively. In fact, we want you to teach doctrine and truth effectively within the bounds that God has given us to operate. This is not to demean women. This is actually to exalt them and to obey Christ as he has called us to. But everywhere we see the church compromising and falling under the pressure of cultural norms. The second one that's so clear and has been so prevalent here recently is while God and Christ calls us to reach out and to love everyone who is lost in their sin, regardless of what it is. The church, in many places, has has adopted this position of being open and affirming of those who practice homosexuality, which the Bible clearly speaks against. The church cannot be holy and theological and affirm that which God does not affirm. This doesn't mean that we are mean or that we are hostile or that we degrade. 
Or do we push away those who are struggling with the temptation of same-sex attraction or engrossed in the sin of homosexuality? No, this means that we reach out to them with love and care and compassion to show them the love of Christ and call them to repent and to find hope in Jesus. But we cannot compromise truth. We cannot fall to the culture and do things and say things that Jesus has said are anti God and anti-holiness and anti-truth. Those things are socially acceptable. But then there's some things that are socially and culturally offensive in our truth. Things that we teach here. For example, there's, there's a movement in, in churches in our world today to, to simply substitute the idea, the concept of sin and transgressing against God with the concept of just we're all broken people with things that need to be fixed. We all need healing in some aspect or another. And while there's truth wrapped up in the idea of brokenness and healing, when we start to substitute the idea of brokenness for sin, as God has called it, then we lose a biblical understanding of what sin actually is and that these things are to be repented of, not simply to be healed or medicated or fixed. There's also a downplay on the judgment and wrath of God in our culture. This is culturally offensive. When we speak of the judgment and wrath of God against sin that causes death and there's punishment and eternal hell for all those who will not repent of their sin. We cannot reframe the wrath and judgment of God against sin to be more culturally acceptable. We cannot reframe the clear teaching that Jesus died He really died on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for us. He really did that. It wasn't just a moral example or a nice story about a good man for us to follow. No, Jesus, the true son of God, fully God and fully man, willingly laid down his life as a substitute for our sin. And the wrath, the full wrath and fury of God against our sin was poured out on him on the cross. We can't downplay that. We can't reframe that to make that more acceptable to our culture and society. We must speak the truth. And here's the third implication. And when we do these things, when we, when we lovingly call sin, sin, and, and set boundaries in our lives and our lives of the church, when we do these things, we are called to continue and to persevere in this clear truth, even when the opposition comes. Even when you have a hard conversation and you speak truth or you hold the truth and you lose friends and family departs, Or maybe there's a threat of a loss of a job. We persevere. Why? Because Jesus, the Son of God, sees and knows and discerns. And if you persevere, as we see at the end of the letter, you will overcome. And even if it doesn't look like you're victorious now... As his church and his people, here's the promise. We will overcome and we will be victorious in Christ. But before we get there quickly, look at the judgment that God calls out on verse 21 and verse 22 to this Jezebel, this self-styled prophetess who is leading the church away. Look here even at the grace of God to her. 
I gave her time to repent. I gave her time to repent. But she refuses. She is unwilling. This is the hardness of her heart. This is a clear statement about her spiritual state. She is not a believer. She is not a follower of God. She is not a part of the true church. She has had time to repent and she refuses. Therefore, verse 22, Therefore, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation. So she is going to endure great suffering for her sin, for her deception of the church of God. And even in this, it almost seems like there's a glimpse of God's grace that even through the suffering, maybe in his severe mercy on her and all those who follow her, they will turn back. Why? Because then, what does he say? Those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless what? Unless they repent of her works. There's still hope. There's still hope, and God, through Christ, is still laying out the offer. Will you turn from your sin, and will you repent? I've made a way. Judgment and discipline will fall on her and her followers. And this is a difficult truth for us to get our minds around, brothers and sisters, but here's the reality. Believers who have been deceived by sin and false teachers will fall under the gracious yet severe mercy of discipline of the hand of God. Paul says, this is why some of you are sick. This is why some of you have died. Because you've given yourself over to sin. And in God's grace, he has dealt with you. This judgment, though, and this disciplining of God should be a a fact that should cause us both to live in the holy fear of God's righteous anger, but also to be comforted by his care for the purity of the church. Because what comes next? In verse 24, look at this, verse 24. To the rest of you. To the rest of you. There's a, see, there's a whole bunch of you who have not compromised. There's a whole bunch of you who have not gone after this false teaching. There's a whole bunch of you who have not laid down your lives in truth and holiness to go after the culture and societal norms and just fit in. There's a whole bunch of you. And here's the word of hope and encouragement and promise to you. To the rest of you who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, here's what I say to you. I don't lay any other burden on you. Just like the Jerusalem Council said to the Gentile believers, like here are the things that, that you need to do to be set apart and live holy lives as Christians in this age. So Jesus says, I'm not laying any other burden on you except hold fast to what you have already. Hold fast to the truth that you have until I come. And until I come is the idea of until I intervene. See, Jesus is going to intervene in, in his time and in his way at the right moment. Whether that's at the end or whether that's in this life to bring judgment and to bring discipline on those who are living in sin and those who are emerging in the church to deceive and to take away God's people, Jesus will act. Why? Because he has flaming eyes that pierce the heart and the mind and sees and knows and understands and he will judge, he will act and he cares more about the purity of his church than we do. So even when we fail as a congregation to recognize it, even when maybe we allow somebody to emerge in their teaching or their leadership that is not spot on on truth, 
God's going to judge. He's going to intervene. Why? Because he cares more about the purity of his church than we do. Because it's his body. And then finally, Jesus exhorts this church to overcome. To the rest of you, I say, hold fast to what you have. Hold fast to truth. Don't participate in the sexual immorality of the culture. Don't participate in the idolatry of the culture. Hold fast to Christ. We sang this morning this wonderful song, Venture on Him, Venture Holy, Let No Other Trust Intrude. Will you do that? Will this be your focus? We're totally committed to Christ. Hold fast to Him, Paul says in Colossians. Hold fast to the head. He will sustain you. And it's amazing promise here at the end, verse 26 to 29, all those who obey, all of you who are faithful, all of, you, all of you who hold on to the works that you've started to do and you continue to do them, you progress in your holiness and in your love and your faith and your perseverance, the victory is going to be yours. You will rule over them. You will take part, actually, in the judgment of those who have sought to deceive you. You will hold part in the judgment of those who sought to oppress you and, and stir up questions and pull away your faith. You will rule and judge with Christ. Verse 28. And I will give him, who's him, all those who overcome, all those who persevere to the end, I will give him the morning star and this is a symbolic reference to, to probably an actual star which represented a deity, which represented victory for the pagan gods. But here, even Jesus himself, later in the book of Revelation, is identified as the morning star. And here's the, here's the bottom line. Jesus says, I will give you myself. You will be victorious, not only in me, but with me. So verse 29, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brothers and sisters, will you persevere in truth and holiness together, knowing that Jesus sees and he will intervene in his time and his way. So you can trust him. You don't have to compromise. You don't have to conform to the culture you don't have to buy into its values and its system. Obey Christ. Pursue holiness and love and faith and service and perseverance. And he will see and he will reward in his time.